Good morning. I appreciate the fact that the songs were focused not only on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also the cross. And I think the music leaders understand that you do not have an open grave without a bloody cross. Please open the copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 5. This morning I want to continue looking at this passage. We started on Friday and we'll finish this morning by focusing on the importance of the resurrection. Friday we began to look at verse 9 off of verse 8 and part of verse 9, and highlighted the importance of the cross. I said that we cannot fully understand the love of God if we do not come, to fa- come face to face with the wrath of God expressed in the love of God on the cross. The love of God is never separated from the wrath of God on the cross. So when we speak about the love of God for those who would be saved, we must always think in terms of him pouring out his wrath on his son in order for his, for his love to be effective in those who would be saved. In verse 9, Paul makes an argument from the greatest to the least, not in quality, but in problem in difficulty the more difficult problem is compared to the lesser problem the more difficult work of our justification is done completed and perfected by God which means then the more easier work of saving us from the wrath of God is much easier to do look at verse 9 since therefore we have now been justified by his blood that is the difficult work of justification having been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god that is the easier work so justification in comparison to what the saving of us from the eternal wrath of God is, that is easy compared to what God had to do on the cross. So Paul moves from the more difficult work, the, the greater to the lesser, not that it is less in quality, but I think you get his point. The more difficult work of justification is done by God, for God, to God alone. That work is done, which means there is nothing that you can do to effect your justification before God. Besides, there is nothing we can do to change our unacceptable condition before God. God has to justify. But if God did the difficult work of placing his son on the cross for our justification, how much more easier is it then for him to keep us saved from the wrath of God, which is future? 
In other words, the future aspect of God's wrath will be poured out, but not on the children of God. Why? Because of the cross. Our eternal security and protection is guaranteed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is weighty. Your eternal salvation and protection is granted by God from God. God saves you to himself from himself. Look at the last part of verse 9. Much more than shall we be saved, jump to the end of the verse, from the wrath of God. So God saves you to himself from the wrath that he will pour out upon you. So to himself, from himself. The cross is the means through which God demonstrates both his divine love and eternal wrath. That was Friday. Now this morning, I want to turn your attention to the importance of the resurrection. And our attention will be given to verse 10. Here we see that God's past act of love saves us for a future reality. God's action of loving us on the cross through the blood of the Son will save us for eternity. You can see the progression of these arguments in both verse 9 and verse 10. I'm going to mention the progression. Verse 9, having been justified, past work, we shall be saved, future work. Verse 10, we were reconciled, past work. We shall be saved, which is future work. There is an interplay which Paul makes between God's past work and God's future work. Paul repeats the same thought in verse 10 with a slightly different nuance. So while I'm going to end on the resurrection, I cannot get to the resurrection apart from the cross. Paul makes that argument for us. In both verses, the kernel the heart, the core, which the entire edifice of salvation is built upon, is Christ. Both in verse 9 and verse 10, therefore having been justified by his blood, that is Christ. Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that is Christ. Both magnify the centrality of Jesus Christ in the salvation of sinners. In other words, there can be no salvation apart from Jesus. I am not making that up. I'm not saying that to be offensive, but it is offensive. There is no salvation apart from from Jesus Christ, because that's the point that God makes. <clears throat> there is no justification, no reconciliation, no forgiveness of sins, nor being part of the body of Christ if Jesus is not part of the equation. God did not leave a question mark 
or an open door for how we need to come to him. There is no various ways you can choose. There is one way that is through Jesus Christ alone. He gave very clear instruction and explanation for how people need to come to him. No man comes unto the Father but through me, Jesus says. Now you may find that offensive. That is not an offense against this church. That is not an offense against me or what I just said. That is a rebellion in your heart against whom? God. Because God said that. See, at the heart of the gospel is God working through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 through to 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. The Father does all he needs to do to effect the work of salvation in the lives of Christians so that they would be saved by him, to him, through the Son, from him. Again, which means there is no other way by which we must be saved. Let me crystallize the importance of this thought. And I want you to feel the weight of it because I'm going to get back to it later. If you do not worship Jesus, if you do not worship Jesus as Lord and God, you do not worship God. That is the weight of Paul's argument in this book. That is the weight of what John says in the gospel. If you do not honor the Father, the Son, you do not honor who? The Father. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. This means it will take more than a mere acknowledgement of who Jesus is in order for you to know God. In order for you to be right with God, something drastic has to change in your nature. The fact that some of you are feeling angry at the words that I've already spoken, and you're probably going to get even more angrier as I go on, means that something is wrong in your constitution. The state in which you exist is rebelling against these words because these words stand opposed to who you are by nature. In order for you to be right with God, you have to go through one man who is God, that is Jesus Christ. And apart from that, you will never know God. God has to justify you. God has to reconcile you. And God has to forgive you, not based on what you do, but based upon what his son has done. That is what it means to be saved. When you get to that understanding, you can and will be saved saved. Now, I have one point to make, and it is this. The life of Jesus secures eternal life for those who believe in him. 
That's simple enough, right? The life of Jesus secures eternal life for those who believe in him. Now let me prove it. The reality of his life impacts the nature of our salvation. How? God's, God's past work of salvation through Christ secures our eternal security and certainty of life. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See the point that I'm making? His life produces and secures and guarantees our life. Again, as with the sermon on Friday, please take note of these few words. You probably want to highlight it in the middle of a stand. Much more now. That is the weight of false argument. If God did this, then this is no problem. Much more now. The main force of this verse hinges on the understanding of the weight of that much more now. So, let's begin to look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Having been reconciled while an enemy, what does that mean? Now, this verse begins with a little word that is called a conjunction. For, which looks back, expresses now or introduces an explanation of the previous thought. So, he's continuing on from verse 9 and explaining a little bit better or further along what it means to be saved by God, from God, to God. If we were enemies... See that little verb, were? I know our, our minds don't always work in grammatical ways, but I'm going to help you to see that little word. It says, while we were, that were is a verb. And that verb tells us a state or an ongoing condition that we find ourselves in. In other words, it is such a state that it is unchanging. We are always and ever in the state or condition of being an enemy of God. You get that idea in the way that Paul words the sentence. For while we were in an ongoing state of enemies before God, our existence was that of a continuous enemy against God. So this is your natural state. That anger that is coming up in you as you are hearing the words of God, that is the state that is natural to you, which is called being an enemy of God. Oh, no, 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 but I love the Lord. Then why are you angry at his word? Oh, but I love the church. Why are you getting upset about the truth of God's word? There is... Um, Something that I picked up from a, a group of friends of mine that started a podcast. They have this phrase, it's called tone police. There are some Christians who are 
tone, quote unquote Christians, who are tone police. So you can you can give the gospel, but but you have to give it in a soft, loving, gracious tone. Don't ever raise your voice because you're gonna chase people away. No. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. He didn't say, oh, you whitewashed tombs. No. I don't believe Jesus was soft in his tone when he spoke the gospel. Why? Because eternal life is on the cards. Our natural state is to reject, to rebel, to hate what God loves. That is what it means to be an enemy. There's a, a mutual relationship of being enemies of God. You understand mutual relationship, right? Both are part of it. When your two sons fight, it's World War Three. It's a mutual engagement of war. It's not just the one party. Both are involved. So then, that means you are not just an enemy of God, but it also means God is what? An enemy of yours. Well, that's shocking. But, but how is it possible? God cannot dwell with enemies. God cannot dwell with enemies. You see this in Genesis chapter 3. The minute man fell... He had to leave. When the devil and his angels fell, they were cast down. God cannot dwell with those who pose him. What Paul expresses here when he says, while we were in the state and condition of enemies, he means that there is a deep-seated hostility and anger, and hatred towards God and all that God is. This is active hostility and anger towards God. This is not just, oh, I don't like him for now. Or, or, or as some women may say, I love him, but I just can't take him right now. <laughs> or maybe some men would say that as well. This is not that. This is not a temporal, as my pastor would say, temporal aspect of not liking God. This is an ongoing, perpetual state and condition of hating, expressing anger and rebellion against God and all that God is and all that God loves. This means you're on the opposite side of what and who God is. All that God stands for. All that he is. You hate. And you rebel against. In other words. We are not interested in God. In the state of enemies. We are not in any way interested. In what he wants. What he desires. What he wills. We are not longing after God. We are not seeking after God while we are enemies. Does that sound familiar? It should. Romans chapter 3. For no one seeks after God. For none is righteous. Why? Because of the state 
of being an enemy of God. For those of you who are parents, you see this from birth, right? From the moment they come out, they want no rules, no laws, you don't tell me. Listen to these kids, just wait a minute. You'll hear them. They don't want the parents to quiet them down. And you maybe have daddy saying, shh. And this child is like, what? Ah, he'll scream his lungs out just because dad said, shh. They don't want to be controlled. The Bible says, folly is in the heart of a child. And we think it's foolishness. It's beyond that. From the get-go. There's a rebelliousness, there's a hardship, there's a hatred against anything that is righteous. The minute you start, Ashanton, start giving the gospel to the baby, yeah, watch that demon come out. Ungodliness reigns supreme from the moment you are born. That is what it means to be an enemy of God. And we demonstrate it from the minute mom refuses you milk. Now in the context of Romans 5, an enemy is the same as being ungodly or a sinner. And I don't have the time to go through all of that. But if you read from verse 1 and you see the word ungodly or sinner, it's the same in the context of Romans chapter 5 as being called an enemy of God. So if you're ungodly, if you are a sinner, then you're expressing your condition of being what? An enemy of God. So all that to say that being an enemy is an active pursuit of failure. It's an active refusal to worship and bow before God. It's an active, unwilling, unrelenting desire to break free from God. Wow. That is what an enemy is. This is not a mere small separation between God and man. It's an unreachable, unbreakable condition that you are in. Paul wants us to understand that there is nothing in us that can change this state of being an enemy. This is an act of rebellion against a holy God. This is tantamount to defying the holiness of God in the presence of God, raising your fist to God and saying, I don't want you. That is the kind of enemy Paul has in mind here. I want you to feel that weight. This is no light condition. This is not something you can just turn the page on the 1st of Jan, whatever. 2024, 3, 4, what's next? 23, 23. COVID messed up my brain, I, I tell you. The weight of this position is more than alienation. This is an active rebellion and willing hatred of God. So that means then, if it's like that from the get-go, meaning from the moment you are born, then you don't become bad. Children, you don't become sinners. You are born into sin. Now imagine you've lived 50 years, 20 years, 80 years, 30 years, 10 years, 
without having your life changed by God. You may start in sin, but you progressively grow in your demonstration of that sin. There is no willingness in man to seek out God. Enemies do not naturally seek peace. Ask Ukraine and Russia. They don't naturally seek peace. Something has to be put on the table to make peace between enemies. Apart from Jesus, we naturally hate God. We naturally love our sins. We naturally want to lay off every law that God gives. So then, this heart of rebellion, this state of unwilling, uh, unrepented, ungodliness must be overcome before reconciliation can take place. Look at the text. Verse 10. For while we were in that state of rebelliousness, ongoing hatred, rejection of God, we were reconciled. Something doesn't sound right there. You are still in a state of rebelliousness and then you are reconciled. So you see the problem. Something has to take place in order for the reconciliation to be true. Your hostility against God must be overcome. In order for man to be reconciled, that is man and women, to be reconciled to God, take note of this, God must overcome your hostility against him. Think about that. In verse 9, we saw that God had to deal with his wrath, which will be poured out on us. And he does so in pouring out his wrath on the Son. In verse 10, Paul gives us a different perspective of this reality. There's not only the wrath of God that is a problem, there's also your sinful nature and rebellion and hostility which is ongoing before God. So then, in order for God to reconcile you, he must overcome your hostility. He must overcome your hatred. He must overcome your condition of being an enemy. God has to step over that line to bring you back to him. Verse 10 again. Even while we were still enemies, while still rebelling, while still hating, while still clinging to our sin, while still spewing out hell-deserving venomous poison against God, while we are in that condition, he reconciles us. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps. How? Look at the middle part of his thing. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God has to overcome your hostility against him. The only thing that will overcome your anger and hatred of God is if the son takes your place. You think about that? The only thing that God will accept as a truce and peace offering is if Jesus takes the place of the enemy so that God can judge the enemy so that that person can be brought to 
Let that sink in. Muse upon that. It is your anger that God has to deal with. It is your hatred of him that he has to overcome. God does not say, well, you have to overcome your anger of me. Since you're the enemy, shouldn't you seek peace with God? But that's not the case. We do not want to seek peace with God. And so God sends his son, not merely to earth, but to the cross so that he would take the position of the enemy on the cross. That is what you call God loving us. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his son to die. God, knowing what it would take for him to overcome our hostility, still took the initiative. And the weight of that is while we hated him, while we were still enemies. Now look at the middle of verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. This means it takes place to us. We are not reconciling to him. This is not us going to him. This is him reconciling us to himself. We don't buy it. We don't earn it. We receive it. We are reconciled by God to God from God. So the active agent in our reconciliation is not man. You do not reconcile to God. You are reconciled to the Father by the blood of the Son. This word reconcile means to exchange one thing for another. It was used by money changers when you have equal weights of, of um, um, transactions, one will be exchanged for the other because they are equal in value. When people change from being enemies to, being, uh, be, to becoming uh, uh, friends, they are said to be reconciled. In the biblical sense, it, is, it, is, it meant to legally reconcile two disputing parties. There is an exchange of a relationship between God and man so that man can be with God. There's an exchange, get this, of a relationship between God and man so that man may be with God. I don't know if you're seeing it yet. This is what God did. Notice, through or literally by the death of his son. How does God deal with our hostility? By sending the son to the cross. Through the death. He wants us to understand that there is no life with God until there is a death of the Son. You cannot have life until the debt is paid. Why is this taking place? There has to be an exchange. In order for God to reconcile us, there must be an exchange. Someone has to take the place of the enemy. Someone has to remove the offense. So then, the death of Jesus is the means through which God removes our offense or our hatred of him. God deals with our rebellion. Not you. You don't get to change your heart when you want to. It's not like January 1, 
obtaining a new leaf. It doesn't work that way. The heart will remain the same even though every year we try to turn a new leaf. Well, then January 2 happens. Ah, the new leaf is gone. It doesn't work that way. God deals with our rebellion in the death of the son. Here's the difficulty. That means then that the son had to take on the position of being the offender. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We, most of us know this verse, verse 18. I'm going to read from 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So there's a new creation model that is begun by Christ through the resurrection, and it is granted to those who come to Christ. So there's something new that takes place. What is this old and new? The old passes away. Behold, the new has come. So there's a change in condition. You are no longer the old person that you were, but you have become a new person. But it is more than that. Verse 18. All this is from God. What is he talking about? How you became a believer. How you became a child of God. If anyone is in Christ, he became a new creation. That is something that takes place to you. And Paul clarifies. All this becoming a child of God is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Get that? God, through Christ, reconciles us to him. There has to be an exchange in order for man to be with God. God has to take the place of man. Listen again. God, who through Christ reconciles the world or us to himself. The us is explained later on. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So now we can preach this message. That there is reconciliation. That there is peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Read on. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world. The world puts back to us in verse 18. So in Christ, God was reconciling the world, the world being us, to himself. Take note of the middle part of verse 19. Not counting their trespasses, their offenses against them. Hang on. Something's not right. Does God overlook sin? Does he ever pass over sin? His holiness does not allow that. His justice cannot allow that. His righteousness will not let that happen. God cannot sweep your sin under the spiritual carpet and just step over it. That sin has to come out from the carpet and has to be dealt with. It's, it's like um, uh, the dissipation of energy. Energy cannot be created or what? Destroyed. Ever been in a car accident? You may be driving at 40 kilometers an hour when you hit the pole. 
the only pole that's on the road, if you hit that pole, what happens to the energy? It's got to go somewhere, right? You don't just pass through the pole. That happens when you go 120 kilometers an hour. But you don't just pass through the pole and nothing happens to you. The energy has to go somewhere. And that energy is dispersed in the crumbling of your car. It's got to go somewhere. The same with your sin. Somebody has to deal with your rebellion and your hostility. So God is not passing over. He's just not counting it against you. How is that possible? Something has to change in your condition or state for God to do that then. Look down at verse 21. For our sake, he that is God made him that is Jesus to be sin. Did you hear that? For our sake, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the exchange? So then the sin is placed on the Son. And the righteousness of the Son is placed on the what? The sinner. There's an exchange. In order for the enemy to become a child of God, someone has to take the place of the enemy to receive the judgment that the enemy should receive so that the sinner can have peace with God. That is what takes place at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul can say, while you were enemies, God reconciled you. Make sense now? While you were still in the state of hating him, the son died. And as the son dies, he dies as you on the cross as an enemy so that you would become one who has peace with God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. The offense, the rebellion, our hatred was dealt with on the cross. What God did is he took all the rebellion of his enemies that would become his children. All the rebellion, all the state and conditions of all his enemies and placed it on the son. Every one of you that has become a child of God, your state and condition of being an enemy was placed on the son. It is your sin personally. That was on Christ. So that you may receive that righteous condition and state that he is by nature. So that God can deal with you. Apart from that, God will never deal with us. Because we remain enemies. To be reconciled means to have peace with God. Look at this one. Therefore, since we have been justified. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire book makes emphasis of this fact that Jesus Christ is the means through which God is able to have a relationship with you. This is what it took to deal with your and my rebellion, our hatred. God could not turn a blind eye. 
He had to deal with our state as enemies. One more proof passage. Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, the rebellion's coming out. Chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Closest, closest antecedent here is Christ. So Christ, he, pointing back to Christ, he himself is our peace. Which means there is no peace apart from Jesus Christ. So then Christ is our peace who has made both, this is Jew and Gentile, one. He brings peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that is between Jew and Gentile. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace that is between Jew and Gentile. And might reconcile us both. It's a change of language. Both are now reconciled to God. How? In one body. Whose body is that? Jesus. Through the cross. Take note of the last line. Thereby killing hostility. That is not between Jew and Gentile. That is hostility between you and God. Killing, destroying hostility. How? Through the body of Jesus on the cross. He had to become a man. He had to have flesh and blood. Because you have flesh and blood. He had to take the place of the sinner. The sinner has flesh and blood running, or blood running through his veins. And so Jesus has to be made like those who have offended God. So the, the, the son of God becomes like the man of sin, Adam. So that as he dies, he may bring the man of sin, those who are in Adam, back to God. Ever wondered about this language of reconciliation? Why does it say we are reconciled back to God? Because our beginning, our start was what? With God. God is bringing us back to the state of having peace with him. Now back to Romans chapter 5. And I'll finish on this. That was the bad news. The problem that God has to overcome is our hostility against him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Rather, we saw God had to deal with the reality of his wrath in order for us to be justified. Now, Paul says, God must deal with the reality of how our hostility against him before we can be reconciled. How does he reconcile us? By the death of his son. How do we know that? Well, Paul says that. To God, we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, which means then, that our salvation and the result of our salvation 
is secured not in anything other than the work of Christ. He places the security of our reconciliation on entirely on the work of Christ. So then if you are saved by God, to God, from God, you are saved forever. I know some people don't like to say that. But that is the implication here. How do I know? Look at the last part of this line, of this verse. Much more, now that we are reconciled, will we be or shall we be saved by his life? All the difficult work has been moved out of the way. All the hard work of dealing with his wrath and with your rebellion is now out of the way. So if he reconciled you while you were enemies, how much more will he not keep you saved if you are his child? That is the logical argument that he's making. If you were reconciled as an enemy, then as a child, guess what he will do with you? He will keep you saved forever. Listen to it again. Now much more that we are reconciled, that is being a child of God, shall we be saved by his life. Not by his death. We were saved or reconciled or justified by his death. But we will be saved by his life. Does that sound wrong? Yeah, because aren't you saved now? If you are a child of God, you are saved now. So what is Paul talking about? A future salvation. An ongoing future salvation. So he's saying that once God changes the life and saves the sinner, you will always have peace with him. How is that guaranteed? By the life of Jesus. What is the life of Jesus? It is equal to the resurrection of Jesus. Because he died. That's the point that he makes in verse 10. If we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death. Very clear, death of the son. Then how are you able to be saved by his life? Yes, to come back to life, right? If he dies and remains dead, there is no life for us. A dead Jesus is not a savior. A dead Jesus means that what we are doing here today is foolishness. Go out and live your life if Jesus remained in the grave. But you have life because he lives. God dealt with the difficult part of bringing us to him while we were enemies. Now the easy part is this. He can keep you saved forever. That is the easy part. He can secure your eternal salvation in the life of his son. Why is it in the life of his son? Jesus says, as I live, so also you shall live in me. Why? Because as the father has life in himself, so the son has life in himself. There's a hymn we sing, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest whose name is love, whoever 
whoever lives and pleads for me. Your eternal salvation does not rest on anything you can offer God. It rests on the fact that Jesus lives. That is it. This is why the easy part of our salvation is the fact that he can keep you saved. If he reconciled you, guess what? He's going to keep you reconciled to himself. I wonder if there's a verse that says, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. Nothing, no height, no depth, de- depth, no, no angels in heaven, no things on the earth, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which he gave to us through his son. God dealt with everything that can keep us away from him. He dealt with everything that was a danger to your soul. The cross is the only way to have peace with God. And once you have peace with God, you can have peace in your soul that you are his forever because Jesus lives forever. This is why the resurrection is important. Father, we are thankful to you for the fact that your son is no longer in the grave. He's no longer bound by death. The author of Hebrews says that death had no, the author of Acts says that death had no hold over him. It could not hold him because he in himself is life. There are those here in our midst that do not know you as Lord and Savior. We're still enemies. We're still in that state of hostility and hatred against you. Who did not like the sermon because it said things that they didn't agree with. Lord, by your grace, reach into their hearts and crush that rebellion. Draw them to yourselves, yourself and give them assurance of the salvation that you can provide eternally through your son. Bless your word. Change the lives that you want to change this morning. For your glory and your name we pray. Amen.